Wisconsin's Afternoon News is on the air. Broadcasting live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue in beautiful downtown Milwaukee. Here's John McCure. All right, the team has assembled. Sandy Max is here. So is Greg Matzik. Debbie Lazaga is doing your roads today, and Adam Roberts is doing the show today. Let's get right to it. This is the three at three on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. All right, Sandy, get us started. Oh, you've noticed the air quality in the Milwaukee area remains at very unhealthy levels for everyone. UW Health Chief Quality Officer Dr. Jeff Podhoff explains how the current air impacts our immune system. The way that this air quality uh, affects us is that these very fine particles, these smoke particles, get into our lungs and our immune systems recognize them as foreign. Uh, And then they start to attack them and that creates inflammation. Uh, And for a patient that may show up as wheezing, it may show up with a little bit of shortness of breath. So it's bad out there. It is dangerous out there indeed, and there are several cancellations taking place. Chill on the Hill in Bayview has been canceled for tonight. The symphony was supposed to perform there. Mm -hmm. Games at Hellfair Field near American Family Field have been canceled. Fitness on the Plaza at the Deer District has been canceled. If you're scheduled to attend an outdoor event this evening, you might want to call and check ahead because there's a good chance it has been canceled. Because at 2 o'clock, Brookfield had the worst air quality in the United States. That's That's pretty bad. That's what we're dealing with. Much more on this coming up at 4.15. Langston Verdon is the founder of the Milwaukee Fresh Air Collective. He'll be with us live in the studio. All right, what's next? Parrot heads are not going to make the plans that they wanted to. Jimmy Buffett is out. This is how Summerfest made the announcement. He was scheduled to perform on July 6th at uh, Summerfest. Next Thursday. And Summerfest instead announcing that AJR, who was going to be with Imagine Dragons, will now headline the American Family Insurance Amphitheater. That's how they sent the announcement out. Hey, AJR at the Amphitheater. Oh, by the way. Yeah. Jimmy Buffett, <laughs> Coral Reefer Band, are out. canceled due to circumstances out of our control. Health issues reportedly dogging Jimmy Buffett and the show on July 6th will now be AJR, not Jimmy Buffett. This is big deal. This is big news. Jimmy Buffett would have sold that place out, AJR, on a couple days' notice. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Great opportunity for AJR. You hate to see it in this uh, kind of circumstance because parrot heads travel. There's oh, no doubt yeah. about that. All right, Sandy, what's the third thing? Our latest WTMJ Cares initiative. Continued today, day two of the three-day blood drive at the Milwaukee County Zoo. Happy blood donors. Thank you to everyone who has donated so far. I love this. And you can still get in, right? You can still get in. Yes. WTMJ.com. You can book your appointment between 9 and 3 tomorrow at the zoo. You can also text BLOOD to our old National Bank Talk and Text Line. Text BLOOD to 855-616-1620. We'll get that link right back to you. You're just a couple thumbtaps away of scheduling your easy... Blood donation. Uh, special shout-outs to my boyfriend, Mike Jakubowski, who told me it was easy-peasy. High praise from him. And also Good Karma Brand's teammate, Nick Van Wagenen, who each took time to donate blood. You can see a video recap of my experience from yesterday on our WTMJ Facebook and Twitter and on our website. Again, book that appointment at WTMJ.com. Yeah. Thanks to everyone so far making Help a difference. Make a difference. Yeah. It is 3.13 at WTMJ. Today is PTSD Awareness Day. What does that mean? You've heard the phrase. You might have a general understanding. What exactly is PTSD? Who does it impact? How you can help and why this time of year is particularly difficult. An in-depth discussion on PTSD up next, live in the studio on WTMJ. It is PTSD Awareness Day. 
an important day, and we wanted to do a little educating. I wanted to get a little educated, and we wanted to bring some special guests in the studio, so I want to welcome them. Dr. Tamara Morris is a licensed psychologist and a U.S. Army veteran. Dr. Morris, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for having me. And we are also joined by Levi Marker. He is the Director of Operations for Dry Hooch Great Lakes. Levi, thank you for your service. It's good to have you here. Thank you, John. I want to start with a couple general questions, and I'll start with you, Dr. Morris, about PTSD. I think a lot of people know what it stands for, post-traumatic stress disorder, but don't really know what it means. When people ask you to describe what PTSD is and how it impacts people, how do you answer that? So that's a great question. Um, So I should go ahead and, you know, let me start with, like, saying that a traumatic response is really anything that happens after a very stressful situation, something that is outside the normal life experience, something where we are directly witnessing a threat to ourselves, a threat to other people, or to something that's very close to us. That response can happen immediately afterwards or something that we see that's kind of like long term. Not everybody that experiences that type of experience has long-term symptoms. PTSD is something that tells us that somebody is experiencing something that is having significant impact on their lives and the lives of the people around them enough that it's interfering with how they're thinking, how they're feeling, how their body responds, how they're viewing themselves and how they're viewing the world. Can somebody who has PTSD have lots and lots and lots of time where everything appears normal and something can trigger that response that you just described? Yes, they can. Sometimes that response, like I was talking about, can present like right after an event that we experience. Sometimes we see that it's like like a series of events that happen one after another. Sometimes we don't notice anything until years after, um, often when there's a major change in your life or something happens that's kind of outside the norm that kind of throws off our ability to cope in the way that we're used to coping with things. What are some, what are some of the ways that PTSD presents itself in someone? Um, it kind of depends on the individual. I mean, I, I would have to say probably the biggest thing that we see for people is feeling not quite like themselves. Sometimes it's the way that we experience emotions not feeling anything or feeling too much of something like anger or fear or shame or guilt. Sometimes it's that we're having a hard time connecting with the people in our lives or the things that are important to us. Sometimes it's that we're not sleeping or we're not feeling pleasure or we're feeling like we can't quite relax. Sometimes it's feeling like the only way that we're feeling anything is to go ahead and put ourselves in situations that aren't good for us. I think that there's a lot of stigma about something like PTSD. I want to bring Levi into the conversation. A 173rd Airborne in Afghanistan, a 240 gunner, uh, six years in the United States Army. Personal question. Um, Thank you for your service once again, both of you. Do you suffer from PTSD or did you? Uh, I don't really like that label, but I'll tell you that it's something throwing on an experience that I went through in Afghanistan that I know I definitely didn't come back the same, you know, through an experience. And uh, we were at Camp Keating, and our day wasn't normal until we were shot at. And how do you explain to somebody when you come back and after the military that, hmm, I don't feel all right. Well, why don't you feel all right? And it's like, I haven't been shot at today. You know, and like, 
And the anxiety was always there until I got shot at. And then luckily still being in the service for so long, it was such a constant pace and in the environment with people around me that, you know, it was the people around me. I always knew they knew what they were doing in those situations. And then becoming a civilian, I felt like all alone, like, like not the people to my right and left would know what they were doing in certain situations. It took me a while to recognize, like, nobody is going to be actively hunting me or shooting me today. So we talk a lot about the camaraderie that people feel in the armed services, which is a really good thing. But when I talk to other veterans, and I want you to weigh in on this, it's almost like when you come back and you don't have that same sort of camaraderie, it can be very isolating. Was oh, it, it a tough adjustment? Yeah, definitely. Because your safe zone is collapsed around just you instead of, you know, a bigger area of armed people that you've been used to. Purpose? Is it hard to feel like you have the same sort of purpose you have? Oh, yeah. I mean, how do you bring a feeling that you have, at any given time, your platoon is about 40 people that will die at a moment's notice for you and you to do the same. And when you get out and around the world, around individuals and civilians, you, you don't have that feeling. Dr. Morris, how do you know when somebody's getting better? The folks who you treat that could be triggered by the fireworks, a car backfiring, anything that's loud or takes them back to a time and a place. You don't know what kind of response that's going to trigger. So how do you know when somebody's getting better or improving on that condition? Well, it kind of depends on what they're noticing. What's not feeling right for you, right? If we think about it as being a difficult situation, just adjustment in general, right? Not everything is PTSD. Sometimes we go through experiences and it doesn't meet that level, right? Sometimes we just feel like we don't belong. Or we feel that we're not understood or we feel that people are looking at us. or we feel that we're just not able to kind of find something that fits for us. Getting better might be being able to feel a connection to somebody. Feeling better might be able, you know, being able to have, you know, your basic needs met. Being able to have a place to sleep, being able to have a job, being able to have, you know, basic resources. There's other people where feeling better is just being able to feel anything. It really depends on the person. So, Dr. Morris, I listened to you, and it sounds a lot like we've discussed mental health a lot in the past couple of years on the show, in some ways very similar to depression, you know, no, no joy, feeling like you're not in your routine. Are there similarities to depression? There can be similarities. Depression can also be a response, you know, following a trauma. Anxiety can be a response. I also think that it's not just about the person. You see entire families that get affected by somebody who's coming back after a traumatic experience. You see entire communities being impacted. It's not just about a person. It's about the people that are involved with that person. I think also a really big thing is feeling, kind of like Levi said, feeling alone. And if we can help people feel connected and understood and supported, that's a really good starting point and helping people see that there are options and solutions available and resources that can make a big difference. Levi, how have you worked to get past some of what you felt initially? Uh, well, after being in a culture of warriors, 
I had to definitely learn that civilians were very squishy, <laughs> which means I had to be careful about what I said and how I reacted to situations. And I say it's taken me a good like 10 years to just be okay with nothing crazy going on or creating my own um, chaos or situation to feel normal. So just, I'd say one of the best things I ever did was just be alone for some time in the world. That, that was probably the best thing I ever did. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion. I want to talk about why this time of year can be very difficult for some of our veterans. Wisconsin's Afternoon News on WTMJ. Talking about PTSD as we head into the 4th of July holiday week, we're joined in the studio by Army veteran, licensed psychologist, Dr. Tamara Morris, and by the Director of Operations for Dry Hooch Great Lakes, Afghanistan veteran, Levi Marker. Thank you so much both for sticking around with us. We appreciate it. I want to start, Dr. Morris, with asking you about this time of year, because every time we talk about fireworks, which we did yesterday, we hear from veterans who say, if... You don't want to think about your neighbors. Think about those that wore the flag on their shoulder because this can be a very difficult time and it can be triggering for veterans who have PTSD. Can you talk about that, how that works, how very real that can be for our veterans? Uh, so to start, I mean, fireworks can be very difficult for people. Um, that is one thing that can be triggering and that it can you know, startle people. It can create like a startle response in the body. Um, but not everybody who has PTSD has it because of a combat exposure. So I just want to go ahead and point that out. This time of year can be difficult for a lot of reasons for um, many people who've served in the armed forces. Some of that is because of those external triggers. Sometimes we also see that there's a lot of meaning associated with this time of year. Some of it is because there's people looking at them and kind of seeing that. Uh, crowds can be a really big trigger for a lot of people just uh, time of year um, in general. Levi, do you find that fireworks or crowds or things this time of year can be particularly difficult? Uh, well, yeah. So fighting season for us in Afghanistan was the summer months. So even though it's been 10 years, whenever the heat comes up in the area, I just get that feeling of, you know, this is very similar and knowing the back of my head that, hey, it's fighting season in Afghanistan right now. There's legit dudes running around the mountains with machine guns looking around for a reason to kill somebody. And even though... You know, us as Americans, we're not there. That situation still exists. And I would say, even though 10 years after, and I just talked to my buddy really quickly before, and I would say 90% of veterans want people to enjoy 4th of July. Like, that's what's more American than enjoying our freedom and having the 4th of July. And I'd say there's about 10% that are wrapped up in, you know, PTSD with symptoms, but also masking it with substance abuse in the situations and the heat, the weather, and, you know, maybe a veteran, instead of trying to be on edge, may, maybe he's taking a little bit of alcohol to try to feel normal around people in these crowds and stuff. And, you know, he might be in a situation where he's a little bit more agitated than he wants to be, but he don't even know how to explain it to people around him. When you have a response, is it a mixture of physical and mental? Oof. Well, Yes. Definitely, can you explain say. that? Take us inside that the best you can. Well, I would say, man, I, I only can use my example. I was around 
uh, at my time, family members around the 4th of July and were in Wisconsin Dells. And a year prior to that, I was in Afghanistan fighting. And uh, I'd lost some friends around July 27th, and I'd fell off a mountain previously. So I came back to some of my members of my platoon missing. And I was kind of taken back to that place like a year ago. So I was distancing myself from family members, and they were wondering what's going on, and I was drinking. And I knew I was a little agitated about things, so I asked to go be around. But that's when family members just started to crowd around me a little bit more. Yelling, I was probably the jerk in the situation. And it escalated to violence. And before I knew it, um, the next day, I'm looking at, potentially six years in prison for two assaults, battery, and strangulation on family members. You know, and afterwards, I'm, like, taken aback because I'm, like, I'm so sorry, guys, but I, I, I wish I would have had the knowledge and insight to tell you, hey, when I'm July, around drinking, and I say, leave me alone, just get away from me, you know, no matter the situation. Levi, do you find that you've been able to help others who have had similar experiences overseas, those who you maybe were in battle with or before or after you? Oh, I feel like it's my mission in life because I had missed some of the days of the heaviest casualties and we survived that. So we should go about living the best life that we can. And one of the best ways we can do it is just be there for one another. I want to ask you, Dr. Morris, uh, about programs or what to do if you think someone, you know, needs help or if you think you need help. But first, uh, since we're talking to Levi, tell us quickly about Dry Hooch. So Dry Hooch is an organization around being in a sober environment where veterans can connect with other veterans and have an opportunity to vent about what's going on in life. And I think the best thing about it is it's like a little niche inside a community for the community. And Bob Curry, you know, Vietnam's veterans, one of their mottos is never again will we leave another generation of veterans behind. And I believe the Vietnam veterans have carried that forward to us be able to have organizations like Dry Hooch and take care of each other. Uh, Dr. Morris, if you think you may need help or you think you love someone who may need help, what's the best thing that someone can do? I would say the best thing that you can do, first of all, is just show somebody that they're not alone. Uh, next thing is reach out, you know, anybody in your healthcare team, let them know that, hey, I, I need help. Um, there's lots of resources available kind of locally here in Wisconsin. VA is a huge resource for people, but not everybody wants VA, and that's okay. Um, the program that I work for, I'm with the veteran training program um, at Aurora. We are a small team of veterans and or family members of veterans. Our entire um, program focuses on helping to support veterans, first responders, and their families with a lot of these issues that we're seeing. Um, I think understanding, you know, the culture and the experience makes a huge difference for people. But we're not the only program out there. Sometimes people, you know, want treatment. Sometimes they don't. And that is okay, too. Get connected with anybody that you feel comfortable with. If it's something really serious, just get any help that you need. Um, there's always Veterans Crisis Line. There's always emergency services. Sometimes, even if you don't need that, there's lots of different programmings, uh, programs available kind of locally, too. Shout out to a lot of things. I think Vet, uh, VetsNet is a huge one. They're a resource hub right here in southeastern Wisconsin. They will get you hooked up with a lot of different resources that you need. There's different programs like different equine therapy. There's different veterans groups that will get you hooked up with um, uh, benefits and resources, DAV, American Legions, Veterans of Foreign War. Um, 
jump in, Levi, with anything. Yeah, so a good thing about us at Dry Hooch, and I'm sure everybody in the veteran community, we all do our best to be resource or brokers. So come in, uh, see what you need, and we'll go out there and find the resources and get back to you. So you can get a hold of anybody at Dry Hooch off dryhooch.org or come into our locations in National on Brady Street. I want to thank you guys so much for being here. Thank you for what you do for our community. Thank you for your service. Thank you for stepping up. Dr. Tamara Morris, psychologist, and Levi Marker with Dry Hooch. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. It is 344 at WTMJ. All right. Let's bring in the main man. He is CBS's chief Washington correspondent, the Takeout Podcast, heard on the weekends on WTMJ. I heard it uh, this past weekend. And his book is The Big Truth. He is CBS's Major Garrett. Major, thank you so much for making some time for us. Good afternoon, John. I want to talk to you about the Russia story and what happened over there. Almost a coup or almost something happened in Moscow. Explain for people exactly what did happen and why it matters. Okay, so what happened? Vladimir Putin, when he invaded Ukraine, found that his Russian military was not up to the task. So then he elicited the services of a guy named Yevgeny Prigozhin who runs what's called the Wagner Group, which is a murderous, thuggish band of mercenaries, soldiers for hire, hired by Putin to more effectively, quote-unquote, prosecute his illegal war against the sovereign country of Ukraine. And Prigozhin's troops suffered lots of casualties, inflicted lots of casualties, have been implicated in many war crimes, And then the two got into an argument. What was the argument? Well, Putin wanted to bring all of Prigozhin's Wagner Group forces under the defense ministry in Russia. Prigozhin didn't want to do that because he wanted his people to be able to operate on their own, answerable only to him and him collecting the money from the Russian government while he's at it. This dispute then became something that for a couple of fateful hours looked like an uprising. It more or less struck me, John, as the kind of disagreement a a contractor and a subcontractor might have over a redevelopment project that's gone awry. Essentially, the paymaster and the person he was paying didn't like the terms of their agreement. I don't think you could fairly classify this as a coup or a mutiny or an uprising, because Prigozhin, yes, he took momentary control of a particular part of Russia and headed toward Moscow, but then he turned away. And now he's in Belarus. What all of this means, I don't think anyone knows, and certainly not no one in Russia and certainly no one in the U.S. intelligence community. It could mean a lot of things. It could mean Putin is less stable than he was, or it could just mean that he wanted to sort of shock the world and say, hey, what if I fall? Do you really want the murderous thug who runs the Wagner Group to be running Russia and all of its nuclear weapons? Probably not. So maybe you ought to do something that's more protective of me. We don't know all the angles and agendas here. What we do know is this, and this is why it matters most. Russia is less stable than it was a week ago. The Russian military continues to have problems prosecuting its war in Ukraine, losing more ground than it's gaining, and the Ukrainians see this instability as an opening to press its counteroffensive more aggressively. This war is by no means over, but this is yet another sign 
that Russia and its calculus behind what it thought it would achieve in Ukraine has almost, if not totally, unraveled. I'm just really interested in this story, Major. So the guy in charge of the Wagner Group says, you know what, if they would have listened to us in the first place, we would have taken Ukraine in one or two days. Is that hyperbole? Is that a reflection of how dysfunctional Putin's Russian army was at the beginning? What do you take away from those sort of comments? So I don't know if that's true or not. What I do know is it doesn't doesn't matter because that's not what happened. The Russian military was the first one in. The Russian military did make a mess of it. And the mercenaries, and remember, when I say mercenaries, that's a charitable term. Most of the fighters for the Wagner Group come straight out of Russian penitentiaries, charged with heinous crimes. That's why they were in there. And there's plenty of evidence that they've committed heinous crimes either as mercenaries or after coming back from the battlefield. So these are really bad people. And did they prosecute the war more savagely than the Russian military? Quite clearly. Did that give them some gains that the Russian military didn't achieve? Yes. But even the Wagner Group couldn't achieve things that have come anywhere close to achieving what Putin wants, which is the subjugation of Ukraine. They're nowhere close to that. As a matter of fact, the Ukrainian military and those who have volunteered to support it have fought them more or less to a standstill in lots of key places and are gently and gradually encroaching on previously held Russian gains. So Prigozhin can tell the Russians, I could have done this better. The more important thing that Prigozhin has said, the head of the Wagner Group, at the center of this dispute with Putin is the very underlying rationale for this war, Ukraine and NATO posed a threat to Russia. Ukraine was infested with Nazis who were anti-Russian, and they were a constant threat and had to be suppressed. Prigozhin now says none of that is true. He's right about that, if maybe the only thing he is right about. And that has created more deeply skepticism within Russia about why this whole thing was started, what is it meant to achieve, what is it gaining from other Russia. Those questions are getting deeper and harder to, for, for Putin to answer. And that, I think, may be, in the long stretch of time, the most important consequence from this dispute. How real is the threat to destroy or at least destabilize Ukraine's nuclear facility? Uh, the, 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 the power the generating power one in Zaporizhia? Yep. Yes. So uh, that's always been a, a, a part of this equation. I don't have on-the-ground knowledge about that. Um, I would say just in general, Ukraine and its ability to fortify the most important parts of its infrastructure have gotten better in the months, uh, most recent most recent months. I, I can say that better. In the last couple, three months, Ukraine has gotten better about protecting its infrastructure, with the exception of the dam the Russians blew up, which flooded a lot of territory in Ukraine, killing many Russian soldiers and lots of Ukrainians. That's that's one of those things that was vulnerable, always vulnerable. The nuclear power plant, Zaporizhia, is also vulnerable in general. So that remains a vulnerability. But as Ukraine's counteroffensive continues to gain ground, there is hope, and I stress the word hope, in the West, that that place can also be protected and be protected more formidably than it was several months ago. Uh, do you have this week's takeout podcast lined up yet? 
We do. So there is a great writer who used to work for the Wall Street Journal named Neil King Jr. And he's written a book called American Ramble. What is that? It's a book about his walk. And I emphasize the word walk from Washington, D.C. to the Ramble in Central Park in New York. It took him 26 days. He walked the entire route, went through a lot of parts of where American history first began. And it was a journey to meet Americans, to revisit our past and explore lots of things post-COVID in America that you could only understand and come to grips with if you go on a slow walk that really doesn't stop for the better part of a month. Takeout podcast, you can hear it here on Saturday afternoons on WTMJ. The book is The Big Truth. Major Garrett is CBS's chief Washington correspondent. Major, thank you so much. Thanks, John.